Hi, and welcome to the Strad Podcast. I'm Davina Shum, I'm a cellist, and I'm the online editor at the Strad. Exploring the topic of historically informed performance in this episode is violinist Alina Ibraginova. She's got a new album out now of the Telemann Fantasias for solo violin that she's recorded on a venerable Amati instrument with a baroque bow and gut strings. Alina shared with me her personal journey of discovering historically informed performance, as well as some tips to approaching the style, including how it's not just about playing without vibrato. Here's Alina. Alina, welcome to the Strand Podcast. Thank you. We're here today to speak about your recent album, your new album coming out of the Telemann Fantasias for solo violin which you've recorded on a venerable Andrea Amati 1570 violin on gut strings and Baroque bow. Now, definitely a venerable instrument because the instrument sort of precedes Telemann by over 100 years. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, tell me a little bit about your journey with playing works in a historically informed way. Is it something that you've always done or is it something that you've been exploring recently? So it's something that I've always been interested in ever since I was a teenager, really. I started listening to John Elliott Gardner recordings, uh, uh, actually St. Matthew's Passion was one of the recordings of my childhood, I really remember, uh, of his. And I really loved the sound and I really wanted to understand it and become better at that style of playing. At that time I was at school with a Russian teacher, a wonderful Russian teacher, and this is when I started really experimenting because it's something that I didn't know how to do at all. And suddenly I thought, okay, well, the first thing must be that I have to play with no vibrato. And of course you play like you would play on a modern setup, let's say a historically uninformed way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, With no vibrato, that doesn't work at all. You know, it just sounds flat and naked and doesn't make any sense if you don't know how to use the bow with that. And if you don't know all kinds of uh, other things about the style. So it was a very much a strange beginning and nobody really understood what I was doing. But then gradually I started to get better at it and it's particularly work on the bow. It's particularly working on different sounds, different ways of emphasizing. Baroque music is all, well, actually music in general is all about tension and release, but in Baroque music it's very, very structured. So you have to really always be aware of that. Uh, Things like dance forms uh, in Telemann, particularly, you know, they're all different dances you have to know. So all of that takes a while to learn. So then I went to college and I started, I actually uh, learned the Baroque violin alongside, I learned with Adrian Butterfield. He was great at getting me to understand how to work with gut strings and all the different techniques to use for the bow and gave me literature to read and uh, things like ornamentation and and actually, when I decided to record the Telemann Fantasias, I went back to him and, and played to him more because uh, it's just, uh, he's been so valuable uh, in, with the process. It's an ongoing journey, this exploration of playing music. And I mean, when I think of this style of historically informed performance, I think so much, as you said, about using the right hand, you know, it's all about the bow and with the gut strings, you can't approach them in the same way as modern strings because... You know, if you bite them, they, they tend to bite back. Very much so. You know, what sort of tips and advice would you have for 
uh, people who are starting to explore this way of playing, you know, in terms of the bow, maybe to do with holding the bow or the way you approach the bow to avoid those sort of nasty mm. encounters. So always focus on the resonance, never direct attack, but always something gentle with, always think of resonance because it's very easy to squeeze in the beginning. You know, you think you have to emphasize, so you squeeze and actually it, it do the opposite. Yeah, it goes <laughs> Exactly, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, think of cats and things like that. So it's it, always to think of the resonance and space, you know? And another thing, uh, broke bow is shorter. So mm -hmm. inevitably, there, there are always going to be more gaps. There are always more rests between notes and, and uh, retakes, you know, the, the bowings are different. So it's important to understand that it's okay to not connect notes. You know, that yeah. notes can be connected even through silence. Yeah, that's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think with the modern way of playing, we spend so much time with joining notes seamlessly, exactly. don't we? You know, there's smooth bow changes and legato sound. But I think what you mentioned before about just having those gaps in the music, that plays into what you mentioned about resonance, right? So allowing the sound to sort of ring in those yeah. rests and, and let them... Yes, absolutely. And, and not to be scared of silence, really. Si silence is fine. Taking off the bow off the string is encouraged. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess in a way it's quite freeing, isn't it? Because you're able to use the air, you're able to use the space just to think more about gesture in that way. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's gesture rather than singing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a lot of gesture and, and speech rather than singing a lot of the time. I mean, obviously, I'm, this is a big generalization, but, uh, you know, th th what, you, you understand what I mean. Yeah, Yeah, it's, it's rhetoric with the bow, isn't it? It's kind of like recitative, isn't it? A little yeah, bit like exactly. Yeah. Mm. Those bits in, in, in the St. Matt's Passion, which yeah. I've not explained very well. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, thinking about the right hand, tell me a little bit about the setup of the instrument you know have you had to make many changes to like say the bridge do you play without the chin rest you know what sort of things do you do in that department i generally don't use a shoulder rest i use a little sponge the chin rest i use a, like a tiny one uh, a tiny one <laughs> yeah so how, how does that work exactly is it well it's very small it's just very small okay i i but actually generally I, on a violin I, I think that you know my my little theory is that the less you put on it the better it sounds so the more open you keep it the better so even even little um tuning oh thing, yeah, tuners i don't yeah. put them on you know little things like this i just i don't know how much of this is true and how much is what i'm hearing in my head but <laughs> but uh it always feels to me like the violin has a more open sound when when i i don't overcrowded with things. Other than that, I had gut strings, uh, the pitch changes everything very much. And of course the violin itself is so old, it's from 1570s. It's a very different sound to, well, actually any other instrument I've played on. It's, it's a very uh, deep, resonant and warm uh, instrument, uh, particularly actually around the D string, which is very unusual because usually that's the slightly less resonant spot usually on on violins but this this just rings it's a, it's a very beautiful thing and it's very small okay small yeah, chin rest for a small violin small chin rest small violin small yeah <laughs> and lots of resonance wow and it's... lots of resonance yeah that's that's the paradox <laughs> that sounds great also wanted to ask you how do you feel switching between the two disciplines between historically informed performance and then going to say you know, let's say you've got to play a Brahms concerto or something. 
How do you make that adjustment? Is it a quick process or is it something that just takes a bit of time? Now I'm kind of used to switching quickly. It depends a little bit of what I'm switching. If I have to switch strings on a, a same, the same violin, then actually the violin takes time to adjust. Mm. So it's more that, you know, the, the, the instrument or, or, or both of us, you know, both the instrument and me. It just it maybe might take a couple of days. But generally, these days I, I find I like changing. I like, I, you know, I like yeah. going from one to the other. I like the contrast. It's a bit of variety. Also, I imagine, you know, after playing Baroque stuff for a while, it, it helps modern playing as well, doesn't it? And vice versa. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, for sure. Mm. Yeah. Finally, I just wanted to ask you about your album and recording solo, you know, quite a, <laughs> some may say scary, but a vulnerable sort of environment situation. Mm. And I'm not sure if you feel that way, but what are your strategies for recording solo works? You know, you're all alone. What's your approach? I've done quite a lot of solo. I've, I've done the Bach, the Zai, and more recently, my first Corona lockdown recording was Paganini, Caprices, which I enjoyed very much and was a lot of hard work. <laughs> and this one was actually, whatever, the second or third wave. Oh, I mean, I can't the, keep track of any of them anymore. I don't know. I'm, I've, 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 yeah, <laughs> me too. So this was supposed to be a different recording and that couldn't happen because the pianist couldn't come over from France, like one of these, uh, you, you remember that? <laughs> so actually it was quite a, because at the time you always needed plan A, B, C, D for whatever you were planning, you know? So this was actually plan B or C, this Telemann. So I suddenly thought, okay, well, if nothing else can happen, this is my backup plans. I went to Adrian Butterfield, I, I practiced, I, you know, I, I learned them just in case, you know, and just actually because I, I love them. And then it, it happened that the, the other recording cancelled. So I thought, okay, this is my chance to do Telemann. Okay, so solo recording out of necessity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but I love it because it's, it's almost like a meditation, especially music like this. Yeah where you get this freedom to use your imagination as much as possible. Yeah. It really feels like you're free and you can do your own thing. <laughs> yeah, and have your own world. Yeah, that's a good way to think of it. I think for me personally, um, the thought of doing solo music kind of scares me. I see a cello there. Yes, mm. yes. For people <laughs> who are embarking on, on solo recordings, it's, I think, useful for them to think about, you know, meditative is the word that you used and that freedom mm. to explore their own musical ideas. So that's great. Alina, mm. thanks for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. To speak about historically informed performance. Thank you. That was Alina Ibraginova. Right now you're listening to the first movement of Fantasia number no. 7 that features in her album, the details of which you'll find in the show notes. Alina is also the first violinist of the Chiaroscuro Quartet, which features in our November issue session report, all about how they recorded Mozart's Prussian quartets. So do check the show notes for a link to that article as well. And don't forget to head to our website, thestrad.com, to check out the latest news, articles and reviews on all things to do with string playing. And if you like what you see and hear, register and subscribe to access exclusive archival content from 2010 onward. We've got 50% off an online subscription for students, and if you're not sure you're ready to subscribe, take out a free trial for seven days. Start reading right away with no strings attached. And if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts right now, give us a little review or a rating. Thanks for listening, and tune in again soon for another episode.
Take good care. Bye.